0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation 14. If you're visiting with us, let me just add my welcome to Mark's welcome earlier. If you came in last week, uh, then you met one of our dear friends, a brother that we have had the privilege of walking uh, in this world for the sake of the gospel for a long time. And Adam Sabados, we're so blessed to have him with us. It's always an encouragement to have him preaching the word for us. But this week you're stuck with me. My name is Justin. I'm one of the preaching or one of the elders here. I'm the main preaching pastor and we are in the very middle of a study in the book of the Revelation. So Revelation chapter 14 starting in verse 6 and this is a this is a vision. We're in a section of the Revelation where we're seeing seven different visions. Uh, and it's right in between seven other things that we've seen. And before that, it was seven other things. John, the, the writer, has a thing for the number seven and the symbolism of that. Even going back to his gospel, in the gospel of John, there are seven different I am statements. And of all the miracles that Jesus did, he only points out seven of them to us. Well, he takes that same theme and he applies it in the Revelation. And, and we see seven churches and seven letters to those seven churches. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions, seven bowls of wrath that are to be poured out. That's a theme of this book. And we're in the middle of this series of seven visions, and we're going to see a vision uh, of a a message that comes from heaven itself. We'll call it an angelic message. John calls it an eternal gospel. So if you've had time to find your copy of God's Word, look at Revelation chapter 14, and follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has Come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Verse 8, another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we go any further with it? Father, thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for gathering us together to focus upon you, to learn from your Word, and to fellowship with other pilgrims on the road. Thank you for the word that you have given to us to help us to know you and to understand the things that you have uh, have shown to the children of men. I pray that you would move among us today. We're we're dealing with difficult things here. We're dealing with the announcement of the gospel, the the fall of the, the city that stands against you and with the warning of the judgment of God that is to come, the wrath of God that is to be poured out in the end. And so, Lord, it's a challenging thing to think about, much less to teach on. So would you give me boldness and and power through your Spirit to do my job? And would you allow us, as a people, to receive your Word? And would you pierce us in our hearts where we need to be pierced? Would you comfort us with your truth, but also afflict us where we need to be afflicted? Have your way with us and accomplish your purpose. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It wasn't until 1852 that the first fire alarm system was invented. You might just think, well, fire alarms, that's not a big deal. We've always had fire alarms. Not necessarily. In 1852, two men, a doctor, William Channing and Moses Farmer, devised a system where two fire alarm boxes would be connected by a telegraph machine, essentially and they would be controlled by a handle. So if you can imagine this, back in 1852, this was what they came up with. If you had a fire alarm in your home, there would be a box attached to the wall, and it would be connected to a station in the city. And if a fire broke out in your house, you were to go over to this box, open it up, reach in, and crank a dial. And that dial was going to send a signal through telegraph to the other end of that. And, and then the, the individual on the other end of that was going to wake up and figure it out and then notify the authorities, notify the fire department so that you know, they could come out and they could help you. Sounds like a pretty interesting That was just the first one. It took about 40 years for someone to come up with an electric version of that. Um, in 1890, a guy by the name of Francis Upton recognized that in most cases when someone's house is on fire and their life is at stake they didn't have time to run to a box and turn a dial in hopes that somebody on the other end would hear it and then take the necessary steps to get people to safety. Now the reason I bring that up is this is just normal understanding for us. When when life throws some kind of devastating event at us When something horrific and terrible and difficult and challenging and life-threatening comes our way, we know that every second counts. We know in the case of a fire in a building or in a home, people need to be warned as soon as possible that they are in danger, and then they need to be able to take the steps that are necessary to seek safety as soon as they can. And we know that even with modern systems, those things don't always work. Just watch the news occasionally. And you'll find out that they don't work. People die in house fires all the time. Now I bring that up to think about alarms and to think about our safety, because in the text this morning, in this particular vision, we see an alarm being sounded. It's an alarm that's coming from heaven. And it's coming in the form of a series of messages that ring out to warn the world that the judgment of God is coming. And the question is, will people hear the warning, and will they seek safety in the Lord Jesus Christ? Joel Beeke writes that this vision that we're looking at today is the testimony of God to a rebellious world. It's these three angels, and they all belong together, because even though they share different messages, that, that their message holds together as a warning to the world. It's a warning to mankind that the judgment of God is coming. It's a warning to all of those, if we, if we know where we are and what we've been studying, it's a warning to all of those who've been deceived by the spirit of Antichrist to put their hope in something other than Christ, maybe even themselves, and it's a warning to them that the wrath of God is coming, and this message is to be preached to the ends of the earth. The first angel exhorts all of the inhabitants of the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and kindred, to fear God... To worship him and to give him glory as the one who made heaven and earth. And they are to do this because the time is near for his judgment to fall. The second angel tells us that Babylon has fallen. Y'all remember Babylon from back in the Old Testament? Well, we have to understand what he's talking about here. But is talking about the destruction of that, that city that is set up over and against the city of God. And then the third angel warns everyone who has put their hope and confidence in the beast, those who have identified with the beast, that the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon them. This is a sober message, and oh, by the way, um, we're just a few sections away from the, the next series of sevens, and in that series, it's the seven bowls of God's wrath and I know that when we talk about the wrath of God, or the judgment of God, or uh, you know, the eternal conscious torment of hell, that makes people uncomfortable. That even makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable. And yet, the Bible has much to say about this. Our Lord Jesus has much to say about this, and we need to heed the warnings of Scripture. So I'm not going to shy away from today or the messages that are coming. My purpose in preaching this morning is to clarify the gospel message as a word of eternal hope to those who repent and believe, and as a word of warning to those who reject Christ and remain in their sins. Those are my two purposes let's get back into the text. So, again, if you're visiting, if you're new with us, this is what we do. I read the text and I'll set it up and introduce where we're going. And then I want you to keep your Bibles open or keep your app up so that you can go back and look at the text because I want you to understand that I'm just trying to explain what God's Word says. And so let's go back to verse 6. Here's what it says as we look at this eternal gospel. John tells us, "...I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim." to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, if you've studied the Revelation, then you may know that there are individuals who would say, in their interpretive scheme of the book, that this eternal gospel is not the same thing as the gospel of Jesus Christ that's preached and taught throughout the, the New Testament. They would understand it to fall in some future category that it's not actually the gospel of salvation through Jesus, but it's some other gospel, it's some other message. But listen, we know that that cannot be true. We know that that cannot be true because the scriptures teach very clearly that there is only one gospel and anything else that purports itself to be a good news should be absolutely rejected. Do you remember what Paul said in the first chapter of Galatians? He said it this way, and it's just so on point. He said, if an angel from heaven comes to preach any other gospel than the true gospel of God's grace in Christ, let him be accursed. And guess what we have here in the Revelation? We have an angel who's preaching a gospel. And I summarize that that is the exact same gospel that the whole of the New Testament teaches us about the good news of what Christ has done for sinners like you and me upon the cross. Furthermore, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, we read that there is one God and there is only one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The gospel message that we've been singing about, and the gospel message that is being proclaimed here, that is being symbolized here in this particular vision, and the gospel message that I'm going to preach to you today, it hasn't changed, it will not change. It comes from God, and it is the good news of what Christ has done in his finished work on the cross for sinners like you and me. The gospel message is to be proclaimed to all those who dwell on the earth. The gospel is the good news. I like to point out when I talk about the gospel, I like to point out that the the gospel is the essential or central message of our Christian faith. The central message of the Christian faith is not, be a good person and God will love you. The central message of the Christian faith is not that you have a debt to pay, but you can do it on your own. The central message of the Christian faith is that God, our Creator, loved us to the point that He sent His Son to live for us, to die for us, and then raised Him from the dead three days later to show that He had had accomplished the only means of salvation that is available to anyone. The good news is that though you and I can't save ourselves, Christ came to save us and He is a faithful Savior. In His love, He died in our place so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We can avoid the just punishment of sin that we deserve and we could receive eternal life as a gift. That's the eternal gospel. And the fact that this messenger from heaven proclaims an eternal gospel should bring to our minds the responsibility that we bear as ambassadors for Christ in this age. Do not forget, brothers and sisters, that in this age, we the church, have, have, we bear a commission from our Lord Jesus to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. We're to make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We take part in this, and that's very much what this vision is symbolizing. The gospel message that we have received is a message that we are also to proclaim there is not a gift from God that is intended to simply terminate on your joy and happiness. Every gift that God gives you is intended to be shared with others, especially this gospel gift. And so we receive it by faith and we rejoice in the blessing that comes through those who, to those who know Christ as Lord and Savior, and yet we share it, we declare it, we proclaim it throughout the world. We've been sent out to declare it, call people to receive it, and to warn them what will happen if they do not. Did y'all hear that last part? The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because the reality of our condition apart from Christ is bad news. You see, the gospel message contains the good news of forgiveness and freedom from sin's guilt, but it also contains the bad news that apart from faith in Christ, we face the judgment of God that our sin deserves. It's only good news because it takes the bad news and it, and it makes it good. But the reality is that apart from Christ, we're hopelessly lost in our sin. Here in verse 7, the angel focuses his energy to proclaim the judgment of the gospel. Now, we've been trained through long years of teaching to let our hearts linger on the love of God displayed in the gospel, haven't we? We've been trained through long years of teaching to focus our, our affections, to focus our minds, to focus our hearts. When we think gospel, we think good news, we think grace, we think love, and yet if we're not careful, we can neglect that there is more to the gospel than just that. There's this warning that apart from faith in Christ, you are still in your sins. The justice of God is an attribute that we must not neglect. When we look upon God's judgment, I've already mentioned that it makes us uncomfortable, some of us, to think about the wrath of God. If there's a a doctrine within the Christian corpus that the world hates the most, it probably would be the wrath of God and the the judgment of God. And that has a tendency to creep into our own thinking. And if we allow that to happen and we look upon God's judgment and we fail to see how it highlights His glory, how it elevates His justice, then we have a short-sighted, truncated view of our Lord and His message. In Romans chapter 1, just before what we read earlier in our scripture reading, the apostle Paul holds the salvation of God and the judgment of God together as a declaration of the gospel. Let me read this to you. This is from first, uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But then he gives us the other side of it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's a bridge there. He says, in the gospel, the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed to those who have faith, but the wrath of God is revealed to those who suppress the truth in unbelief. Paul wants to make very clear in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, that there are two sides to the gospel, the grace of God and the justice of God. In other words, the gospel of Christ holds out the amazing promise of forgiveness and salvation to those who embrace Christ, but it holds out the fearsome wrath of God for all those who reject the truth in their unrighteousness. Both grace and justice adorn the gospel. Don't have a one-sided view of this message. And notice in verse 7, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 7 in the Revelation, notice in verse 7, verse 7, that this gospel requires something of those that hear it. They are to fear God. They are to give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and they are to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So those who hear the gospel call are, are called to fear God. That's a response. And to give Him glory... And to worship him. And since we know a couple of things, since we know that fear is the beginning of wisdom, and this call to worship seems to imply that these individuals are not worshiping the Lord, I believe that we can understand that this is, this is reference that the, the angel is proclaiming the gospel to those who ha- have not yet received Christ, right? This is symbolizing for us our mission, our responsibility to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth to those who don't know Christ. This vision symbolizes the universal offer of the gospel to all men, all women, all children. It symbolizes the warning to the world that the judgment of God is coming and that the only hope that exists uh, for, for salvation and freedom is to turn from our sin and bow before God and the Lamb, to worship Him and to give Him glory as we fear Him rightly. And this warning is urgent because the angel says the hour of his judgment has come. Now, that's a warning for where we're going next week, because next week in this series of visions, we're going to see the reapers come out, and they begin to reap. Because in that particular point of the vision, the judgment of God has begun to fall. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out in this particular section, and then we'll move on to the next section. The the, the last thing I want to point out here is that John presents... God's coming judgment upon the unbelieving world as something that should be a comfort to suffering Christians. Yeah, y'all heard me say that right. Every time we preach the judgment of God, it is right and it is good and it is necessary for us to say, and yet the day of God's judgment has not come If you find yourself today apart from Christ, understand what the gospel says, that if if you were to die in your sins today, then you would face the judgment of God that your sins are due. That's the way we think, right? When we think about the judgment of God, we want to say, yeah, but the gospel, but the gospel. Yes, true. Amen. And yet, in this vision, John is holding out the judgment upon the unbelieving world as something that should give comfort. To Christians. Why? Look at verse 13. I think some of it's, it's kind of hidden in here. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. For the believer to know that the judgment of God is coming or for the believer to die in, in this age is to know that my sins are covered because the justice of God, the judgment of God that I deserve was poured out upon Christ. Do we think that way? Do you know what Jesus was doing on the cross? He was not just hanging there to die as a good example for you. He was enduring the wrath of God that his people deserved. There is no sin in the universe that will go unpunished. There is no sin that will go unpunished. Either we will face the judgment of God in eternity that we deserve, or Christ took our punishment for us on the cross. But every sin is punished. That's what justice demands. That's what divine justice demands. And we know and we understand as believers, we've put our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We're forgiven. Eternal life is ours, and nothing can take that away from us. So to die is to know that we're going to be with him. And yet, there's another part of that that gives comfort to the believer. Don't forget the context of the revelation and what believers are enduring at the hands of those who have bowed the knee to the beast. The coming of God's judgment means that the worldly system led by the dragon and the beast will come to an end. The coming of God's judgment means the end of suffering for the believer. It means the end of persecution for the believer. It means the end of trials for the believer. Or like John writes here, it means rest from our labors. It means the triumph of God's good kingdom over the evil kingdom of this world. And this is good news. And it is intended in this instance to be a comfort to the church. It also means the end of God's free offer of forgiveness. It means the window of God's mercy has closed and his wrath is about to be unleashed. So for you, unbeliever who've come, we're so thankful that you've come But I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't preach the gospel to you and urge you to understand that now is the time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. If you tarry, you may never come. So come to Jesus. Turn from your self-salvation mission and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and all He's done for you. That's the first part of the message, this eternal gospel that is being proclaimed, both the the offer of forgiveness and the warning of judgment. But there's more to this angelic message. Look at verse 8, where we read, Fallen is Babylon. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of her passion, of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this second angel lets us know that the wicked city of Babylon, the dwelling place of the beast, has indeed fallen. And at first glance, it may appear that this has really no connection to the first vision. It's like, well, how does that match up? But when we kind of understand what Babylon represents in this vision, we understand the connection that's being made here. Now, throughout the revelation, and not just in the revelation, in other places within the New Testament. But specifically throughout the Revelation, when the name Babylon appears, it doesn't refer to an actual city. The name represents the cultural centers in the world, right? And it goes back, this idea of uh, Babylon the Great, it goes back to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. When King Nebuchadnezzar, do you all remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know how all that's set up, Yeah. It got set up because Nebuchadnezzar felt really good about himself. He even declared that he had built this great city, this great city of Babylon. And and that language is being taken by John and being applied here in the Revelation to refer to the, the, the worldly centers in the culture. Babylon was this wicked city that stood against the people of God. It was the the seat of world power at that time. And and when Israel was led into captivity, they were led into captivity in Babylon and they were persecuted. And if they refused to bow down to the idols of Babylon, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. We know the stories. And John is taking that language, he's taking that story, he's bringing it into the revelation and he's helping us understand that that's very much what's happening to, to Christians all over the world. There are cultural centers who have set themselves up in the place of God with ideologies and philosophies and practices. And and for the believer to be faithful is, in many cases, to be persecuted, to be ostracized, to be pushed to the margins of society, if not uh, persecuted and killed altogether, as we know throughout history. And John is using that language to help us understand that this is what's happening during the day in which we live. Throughout the Revelation, the name Babylon doesn't refer to the actual city of Babylon. The name represents the cultural centers in the world that stand against God and persecute God's people. It symbolizes the demonic world system that is filled with sin and drunkenness and sexual immorality. We, we know from the other visions that we've seen that the great serpent, that the dragon, is what gives fuel to these cultural centers but that's what they represent. Babylon represents all the cities throughout history that have promoted this kind of unbelief. Because Babylon, in a spiritual sense, is the spiritual capital city where the spirit of Antichrist rules the hearts of men. Think about the Tower of Babel and the city there. That was the first Babylon, if you use it in a spiritual sense. Or think about Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a a Babylon in that sense. Think about Egypt and what it stood for, what it represented as a persecutor of the people of God and a temptation for the people of God to turn away and worship idols. Think of Nineveh, Philistia, the actual city of Babylon in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. All of those things would fall into this category. In other words, we're not looking at one city. We're looking at This city as a symbol for all cities that stand against God. In the New Testament, you might think of Rome. Today, you might think of Las Vegas or San Francisco or New York. In the Revelation, Babylon is a reference for the converging of evil in cities all over the world, spiritually speaking. And Babylon is still a force today. It's where man sets himself up against the truth and power of God. Babylon is the world opposed to Christ and his people. And how many of us are willing to admit that we still feel the tug of Babylon every day? The ideas, the immorality, the pursuit of prestige and money and power. How many of our friends, how many of the people around us are still following the trends and demand that Babylon puts on them. Now, don't think that you can resist the seduction of Babylon by moving to the suburbs and avoiding the city. That's not the point of the vision. In our day, the ideas and the immorality and the idolatry of Babylon have crept into the suburbs, right? Through those little devices in our pockets and the screens that we watch. And all of the ideas that we're flooded with the ideas, the morals, the ungodly practices of Babylon they're everywhere. She is seductive and she tempts the world, according to this vision, to drink the wine of her passion. She promises something, but she can't deliver on those promises. She promises peace, but provides no no peace. She promises fulfillment. But people just keep going back for more and more and more because there is no fulfillment. She promises to keep people secure, but the angel said, Babylon has fallen. James chapter 4 verse 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James is just black and white. He doesn't use symbolism. He's just right in your face. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the idea that Babylon represents. The pattern of this world runs contrary to the way of Jesus. Zion is where we belong, right? That's the vision from a couple of weeks ago. Zion is where we belong, not in Babylon. And the angel is warning the world and reminding us that the days for this wicked city are numbered. So, to riff off of Rob's lessons, like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, we need to plug our ears and we need to run from the city of destruction. We need to plug our ears and find our way to the king's highway because that's the only road that leads to the celestial city. Babylon has fallen, the angel tells us. And there's more. There's one other vision here. Look at verse 9. The coming of the wrath of God. The third angel issues a warning for those who worship the beast and its image and receive its mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. To receive the mark of the beast is to identify yourself with the sinful power of this world. It's not something that's going to happen to you accidentally. It's something that identifies you as having put your hope and confidence in the worldly system. To worship the beast is to refuse to worship Christ. To worship the beast is to engage in the idolatry of self, or in the idolatry of man, or in the idolatry of a worldly philosophy. And these things symbolize the faith commitments of unbelievers. Did you know that unbelievers have made faith commitments? And those faith commitments are leading somewhere. All of us have made faith commitments. Whether we've chosen to reject the codified faith of the gospel, or we've imbibed some other idea. There's a faith commitment at the core of who you are and what you believe. And those faith commitments are leading you somewhere. In this particular case, this is a reference to the unbelieving world. They've rejected Christ and by default they've aligned themselves with the enemy and the mark is a symbol of their allegiance to the God of this world. And in verse 10, the angel says that those who have identified, those who have aligned themselves with the the world apart from God, they will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. I wish I had a deeper voice because I believe that that verse should be read like like Charlton Heston or something, right? It's strong. It's powerful. It's hard to to hear. But it's one of those verses, it's one of those phrases that should cause us to stop and think. Those who have the mark of the beast, those who have aligned themselves with the secular world will drink the the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength, into the cup of his anger. Notice that this is the second time the word wine is mentioned. And that's not a mistake. Babylon tempts unbelievers with the wine of her immorality. And the image here is that for those who've indulged in the wine of Babylon's immorality, they will taste the wine of God's wrath, full strength. No dilution. And the imagery of pouring out wine is used throughout the Scriptures as a reference to the judgment of God being poured out because it causes men to stagger and fall. Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. Isaiah 51:17 Wake yourself wake yourself stand up O Jerusalem you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering What is the symbolism of this it's it's odd but there is symbolism in the Old Testament and here in the Revelation that's the way it's being used think about it for a second Whether you're a teetotaler or you don't ascribe to that if you drink too much wine and you try to walk, what are you going to do? You're going to fall. You're going to stagger. Because that's what alcohol does. It, it, it influences you. And when you drink to the point of excess, it influences everything about you. It influences the way that you think. It influences the way that you speak. It influences the way that you act and the way that you walk. And that's the image. That's the symbolism. When the wrath of God is poured out undiluted, everyone upon whom it falls will be powerless to overcome its influence. You can't shake it off. You're not going to sober up from it. There's no coming back from this. You're going to fall under its weight because it will consume you. And that's the picture. And it's a terrifying picture. And that's not even the end of it. Look back at verse 10 and it says, And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. When we think about hell, this is the language that comes to mind. Fire and sulfur and torment. Verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and there is no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, like most of what we've seen in the Revelation, this language is taken from other passages in Scripture. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 34, you'll see that language almost word for word. Fire and sulfur, smoke and torment, day and night, no rest. That's the language of the Scriptures. And this language is horrific. And and in Isaiah, it's used as a description for God destroying the city of Edom and the people there. And John uses the same terminology to describe the judgment of God that is to fall on unbelieving nations and the horrific suffering that will result from it. And there will be no rest from it, day or night, forever and ever the torment goes up. It's a terrifying idea. The wrath of God is here described in the most frightening Possible ways, and it's only going to become more frightening as we continue to study. But let's make sure that we understand something. The wrath of God, if we think about it theologically, we think about it from a biblical theological perspective. When we learn about the wrath of God, we need to understand that the wrath of God is a display of His divine justice. We talk about God being loving and gracious and kind, and just. And we're all about justice, right? At least when we're the one that something has been done against. But when we've done something wrong, we're like, well, you know, grace, please. And God is gracious. But God is just. And not just just in that grandfatherly sense. He's perfectly just. God hadn't hasn't had to learn about justice. God is the standard of justice. Our instincts towards justice. When someone does something wrong to us, when someone takes something from us, that internal longing for things to be made right, that internal longing for justice, that's coming from God Himself because our God is just. Only He is perfectly just where we are sinfully just, selfishly interested in justice. God is a just judge. He is the just judge of all the earth. And he is the one who will do what is right. And his wrath, his judgment, is the perfect response to the rebellion and sin of humanity. As well, as we'll see in Revelation 20, to the rebellion and sin of Satan himself. Justice is about balancing the scales. When you think of justice, do you think about the, the, the woman with the scales and the sword and the blind thing? Yeah, that's what justice is about. It's about balance. It's about balancing the scales. Justice requires a punishment that accurately fits the crime. And we all know this, right? Right? We we believe that our society is just in that sense that when we commit crimes, there is a punishment that follows. If you get caught speeding on your way home because you want to see the Cowboys game, I don't even know when the Cowboys are playing. I'm just using it. We're going to go with it. If you get caught speeding, then you know there's going to be a punishment. It's going to be a fine and your insurance is going to go up, right? You take somebody's life, you're going to spend some time behind bars, right? Right? The crime and the level of the crime we commit is commensurate with the level of punishment we receive, or at least it should be. I think our culture has kind of forgotten that in some senses. But that's the whole concept of justice. That it's about balance. As we look on, and and here's the point I'm trying to make. As we look on the horror of God's wrath being poured out, understand that that is a just punishment for the sins of the world do you think about your sin as something small insignificant no big deal then look at the picture of what is required in order to cover that sin in the death of the son of god or look at the picture of god's judgment The eternal torment which goes on forever and ever, which is required to balance the scales. We've grown to think about our sin as something small and insignificant, as something that we've got under control. But the scriptures keep coming back to us and saying, no, you don't have this under control and you do not fully understand the sinfulness of your sin. Look, I get to stand up here at the beginning of the week, having spent a whole week studying this and proclaiming it with boldness, I hope. But it doesn't show you all the wrestling that I've done over my own sin that was revealed this week as I'm studying this text. It is a good and right thing for us to be laid bare before God's Word so that we can understand who He is, what we've done, and what He's done to accomplish our salvation. And so that we can see in those that don't know Christ just how much they need to hear the gospel. God's wrath is His fair and righteous response to our sin. And notice that the Lamb is present when this happens. Look back at verse 10. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The one who endured the wrath of God deserving by sinners like you and I who believe is also the one who's going to ensure that the justice of God is poured out in the end. And those who rejected Christ in life will be forced to acknowledge him as they are held accountable for their sins against God. God's wrath is real. Hell is eternal. It goes on forever and ever because God is infinitely glorious, infinitely important, and he's the one we've sinned against. The wrath of God will never be exhausted. Hell is a place from which there is no escape or comfort. But friend, hell can be avoided. Jesus has come to rescue us from our guilt and the shame of our sin and from the power of sin and the guilt of sin. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sin so that we don't have to pay that price ourselves. Like I said earlier, Jesus paid it all. Therefore, all to him we owe. He came to rescue us from the awful reality and divine justice of God's wrath. So fear God and repent. And in conclusion, I, those are, there's three things I want to talk about, and it starts with that. Fear God and repent. And that's hard for us because our hearts are naturally tuned to me first, right? We're all little me monsters. Me, me, me. Did I forget to mention me? That's that's who we are. We're we're naturally interested in ourselves more than others. And yes, some of us may grow to be more others-oriented, but we're all initially and fundamentally me first. And that means that we scoff at the idea of fearing God because we think we shouldn't have to fear anyone. We shouldn't have to fear anything. We should be able to do whatever we want. We should be able to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And if something stands in the way of that freedom, well, we want to cancel it, right? That's our cultural thing here. We're just going to cancel it. But at the heart of the gospel message is a call to acknowledge God as God. It is a call to embrace the truth of his existence, of his authority, of his justice, of his word, and of his grace. And when we learn to see ourselves rightly exposed by the truth of God, we will begin to understand what the fear of God means. He is God and there is no other. He is God and we will answer to Him. And repentance will follow. So fear God and repent because Babylon's fall is certain. There's another point of application, and this is for those who have repented and are trusting in Christ, endure in the faith. Endure in the faith, hold on to Christ, and don't let go. That's what we see in verses 12 and 13, this this idea that we're going to hold on to the truth, and even if we die, we're blessed to die, because that just means eternal life comes to us even quicker. So, brother and sister, don't abandon the gospel Because you think that something's being offered over in Babylon that looks more appealing. Endure in faith. Hold on to Christ and don't let go. Set your mind on gospel grace and don't let the world convince you otherwise. But know that your endurance in the faith is not a one-sided battle. The scriptures tell us that the one who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling knowing that it is God who is at work in us. Or I'll just use song lyrics because those things tend to stick. When you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold you fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. But he will hold me fast. So as we endure and hold on to Christ, know that Him and His divine Spirit is holding on to us. Endure in faith and by the strength of your redeemed heart and by reliance upon the Spirit's power. And then lastly, persevere in obedience. Those who hear the gospel call are called to worship the Lord, to fear Him, and to be faithful in obedience. The temptations of Babylon are still going to come. They're not going to go away today just because I've named them. We're still going to face those temptations. But the Lord calls us to be faithful. He calls us to, to follow His commands. And His commands are things like this, believe in me, deny yourself, take up your cross, love one another. These are the commands of Christ persevere in obedience. He, he urges us to go into the world and make disciples. Are you active in the work of disciple making? Moms, as you're at home with your children, are you active in the work of teaching your children the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Dads, as you're active in the home and outside the home, are you faithful in proclaiming the truth in sharing the gospel with others in sharing the truth of God with others, taking time out of your day To be an ambassador for Christ where you are. The command of our Lord is not a burden to those who love Him. The command of our Lord, He tells us, is light and it is easy. But it is still a yoke. So brother, sister, be faithful to the command of Christ. Strive to obey the Lord. Make every effort to supplement your faith with the virtues of obedience. And if you need just something a little more pointed, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Persevere in obedience. But remember, remember the warning. Remember that fire alarm. The reality is the judgment of God is coming, and yet the day of salvation is today. So the extent of the, the offer of God's grace is still reaching out to you. If you will but recognize And turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us to do that. Father, I thank you for the word that you have given to us. I thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us. Even the hard truths to help us understand what we are to flee from. You didn't withhold that from us. You made it clear to us what justice demands. But you also made it abundantly clear to us what your grace has extended. So Lord, I thank you for this passage I pray that you would teach us from it. I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive the message of Christ, to receive Christ as Lord. I pray that you would have your way with us and accomplish your purpose. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.